friends, we are back with another edition of the Cheap Heat Productions Wrestling Podcast. My name is Jack Kilby, Executive Vice President of Great North Wrestling. And before we get to our guest today, a man who is behind so many of those iconic themes and music from the original ECW, Mr. Harry Slash, I have to always throw to Mr. Cheap Heat himself, Maurice Shortall. Maurice, how are you tonight, sir? Good, gentlemen. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, Harry. And I know we probably have to talk about wrestling at some point, but I just noticed your hat and I just want to ask you, have you been to Amsterdam? Did you enjoy your time there? What do you think? Actually, I just got the hat as a gift. I oh, never that's a shame. I, I never actually made it to Amsterdam, but I had friends that brought Amsterdam to me and I thanked them for that. <laughs> nice. How they stuck it through customs, I don't know. Yeah. I just I just seen there before we started anyway, twenty-three years ago to the day. Do you wanna do you wanna tell us what the what that is? Twenty-three years ago tonight was the first and only time that me and a bunch of fellas performed an entire almost an entire set of ECW music at the punk magazine 20 20th anniversary party that took place at the legendary and no longer existent CBGBs. And we did a whole bunch of ECW tunes and one song from the band's previous incarnation where we used to do mashups where like for that tune, the band played My Generation by The Who and I sang the words to the Beverly Hillbillies over it. And that was it. And it was John Holmstrom's birthday, who was a big supporter of ECW and my friend Balls Mahoney, who unfortunately is no longer with us, he, he gave us some long-winded tirade introduction talking about chickens and, you know, some weird shit. You know, I have no idea where his introduction came from. I think at one point he forgot he was introducing the band and just kept talking. He was doing a promo. And that was the set. That was it. That was, this is the historic 23rd anniversary of the day I became the proverbial fat lady because I sang and then a week out later the, the show was over. The company closed. Without diving into the wrestling too much too soon, I just wanted to know kind of what your background was before wrestling. I know you've got an interesting story about how you became involved in that business, but right back onto what you'd done before then and what kind of bands were you influenced in and what instruments did you play? Well, I started as a drummer and I sucked. You know, you have to be able to use both hands, right. and both both feet at the same time. And my brain just didn't grasp that. So I, I played drums for one summer until it was unanimously decided that I sucked as a drummer. So I actually went out and bought an acoustic guitar and I started taking guitar lessons. And, you know, then we went on from there. And back in my, my youth, my very, very youth, I was in several punk new wave bands. One was called Storm. One was called 1111. One was called Focus Concentrate. Absolutely no material from any of these bands exist. I had cassettes, but they're long gone. And honestly, I don't even remember half the people that were in those bands. And then I took a long hiatus after I kind of destroyed the left hand in a few accidents, broke some fingers, couldn't really play guitar that well, and basically gave it up 
And at one point, maybe, I don't know, five, 10 years later, I was a club promoter in New York. And I put together the slash tones for a one night only thing as a joke on my birthday. And that joke has kept going for the last 30 some odd years. You know, it really was only supposed to be the first and last time. And then a year later, I did it again. And a few months later, I did it again. And a few months later, I did it again. And we kept doing it and it kept growing. And then I quit. And then two months later, I was doing music for ECW. So it's, you know, like the Beatles said, the long, strange road, the long and winding road. What a long, strange trip it's been, like the Grateful Dead said. You know, I never set out to do any of this shit. It just happened. It fell in my lap. So was it through your work in uh, the club scene that you first made contact with uh, Paul Heyman? And could, could, yeah. you, could you illuminate uh, the fans as to how that process worked from making contact with Paul to doing the music? Well, I met Paul in the clubs, in the China Club to be specific, but I wasn't watching wrestling at the time and I didn't know what a Paulie dangerously was. And I hung out with him for several years, not knowing what he did for a living. Eventually, I found out what he did for a living. You know, it was at a party they were throwing for him. And he was, they had the best of Paulie dangerously on video screens. It was like one of those moments of like thinking, like looking at, at a giant Paul Heyman on a screen and then looking at Paul Heyman over there and thinking that my friend Paul was one of those weirdos cosplayers that dresses up like wrestlers for a moment because the, the two and two didn't add up to four for some reason that day. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 in spite of what he did for a living, I stayed friends with him. I did go to his one show with Jim Crockett Jr., the World Wrestling Network. And the only person on the, it was the two people on that entire show that I knew, two or three people. I knew who Jake Roberts was. I knew who Terry Funk was. And I knew who, I think it was Hawk from the Road Warriors. But as to the rest of the card, which ended up being like the predecessor of ECW, with like Mikey Whipwreck and Sabu and, and a bunch of others, I had no clue. I had no idea who anybody was. I just went there because my friend invited me to a show he was doing, and I went to show support. Then a few years later, I started working with ECW, not expecting to work with them. I was just kind of drafted, I guess. And then along came the Manhattan Center crossover in 97 for Barely Legal, and Paul needed music in three days. And he called me up asking me to, to create sound-alike clones of what the guys were using. I had no idea what he was talking about. And like he, the way he explained it, it's like, you know how on WCW, uh, Diamond Dallas Page comes out to Nirvana, but it's not Nirvana? And I was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I went to what, you, what kids used to not, what, what used to be called record stores, <laughs> you know, the kids today have no clue. It's not like the, you know, you download it to your phone. You actually went and bought a physical product. And I, there weren't a lot of wrestling CDs, but I went and bought all of them and I listened to them and I called them back. And I said, dude, this isn't music. This is shit. That this is garbage. Is this what you want? And he goes, yeah, but not so garbagey. So <laughs> in, I had a 24 hour window um where i got uh richie scarlet and steve budgie from the ace freely band 
And Eddie Wall, who since then has gone on to win like 10,000 Emmy Awards, and he's got gold and platinum albums for producing Primer 55, El Nino, all these amazing bands. But back then, he had a studio based out of his mother's garage. You know, so in 24 hours, nine o'clock on a Saturday to nine o'clock on a Sunday, myself and, and these other dudes all put together three kind of almost kind of sound alikes of Man in a Box, Enter Sandman, Taz's theme. And we did one more. I just I forget what it was. I think we did two generics, which which was just a two part rift into back into the, you know, riff chorus, riff chorus type of stupid shit like like everybody else was doing in wrestling. Manhattan Center happens. They play the tunes. I cringed in some of the spots that had out of tune stuff, but we had no time to fix it. And then I figured I was done and I wasn't done. And then Taz wanted to keep using the music I did for him, which meant I had to go back in the studio and fix the mistakes. And then I figured I was done. And then I wasn't done because Perry Saturn, who worked with Taz at the House of Hardcore, if Taz had his own music, Perry Saturn had to have his own music. So I did Perry Saturn's music. And then I thought I was done. And then Heyman needed a theme song for the company to open Barely Legal, which again was like very small window, like three, four days. I tried to explain to Paul several times that a three minute song takes a lot longer than three minutes to record, but I don't think that ever kind of went through his head. So, Especially back then. Yeah. Well, if I had today's technology back then, I would have been able to do a three minute song in three minutes. Well, not exactly three minutes, but in an hour. Yeah. You know, so the ECW theme was created. And then uh, Sasu, I did something for Sasuke that ended up being used for Tajiri down the road. And it, it just took off from there. So it was really the, the time constraints that were the, the problem around it. Like it was easy work for you to, to kind of make these knockoff songs, some of them for like as you alluded to, Enter Sandman and things like that. It wasn't really challenging because you're an experienced musician. It was challenging because we had to follow a guideline to not violate their copyrights. Go over the line, yeah. You know, I called up my lawyer and I said, what constitutes a derivative? What constitutes a knockoff that we can't get sued over? And he gave me the guidelines and when we all got together in the studio that Saturday morning, we listened to Enter Sandman or Man in a Box. And I'm like, okay, this phrase here by Alice in Chains, that's the, the fourth bar that has to be changed. We're gonna have to change this chord. We can't do this particular riff because it's a signature riff of Alice in Chains. So we'll do an inverted version of that. And that's how we put it together in 24 hours. I'm glad you you touched on uh, this is extreme. I, I wanted to get your your process on that because when original ECW fans think of the company, you know, music wise, in addition to the wrestler themes, you know, there's uh, bodies by Drowning Pool, but the this is extreme. Nope, 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 nope. Nope. That's WWECW's song that that they have since superimposed on everything. Correct. Yes. But your theme is the iconic um, 
theme for the company. What and you said you had a limited window to put that together. How did you approach such a monumental task with such uh, great success? With a lot of pot. <laughs> you want me to be honest with you? We I had to work. My my work day began at two a.m. because my partner at the time he had gigs in the evenings. So for four days in a row, I would go into go to his studio at, at two in the morning and work until six in the morning. The way we approached it is Paul wanted something evil, menacing, you know, something to open the company. And I, I thought of the most menacing song I could think of was the theme from Jaws. And that that was my main inspiration for the ECW theme. Plus, I added a little some elements of uh, Nine Inch Nails, Butthole Surfers, White Zombie, a little Led Zeppelin in there. And that's how we got what we got. Interesting. Harry, I wanted to get your opinion on, obviously, everyone talks about the famous WWF composer, Jim Johnston. And um, when you were involved, when you weren't involved with ECW, rather, were you still looking at any wrestling and kind of seeing what they were doing with entrance music? Or did you just have no interest in it after you left? Only after I got involved with ECW, prior to that, I hadn't watched wrestling on a consistent basis in maybe 20 years. You know, for me, wrestling was Bruno San Martino, superstar Graham, Bob Backlund as champion. Eventually, Bruno permed his hair, put on a yellow jacket and started doing commentary. And I figured, well, he, he's never getting the belt back. And at one point, all WWWF programming went off of broadcast television and strictly to cable. And where I lived in New York, we hadn't gotten cable yet. We were like one of the last areas of New York to get cable television. Plus, at that point, I was no longer a kid and other interests came about. And the only time I would watch wrestling is when it would be on Saturday night's main event on WNBC, which was broadcast television. So once a month, I, I would tune in if I was home because it was a Saturday night. And that's how I ended up knowing who Jake Roberts was at the Manhattan Center, how I knew who the Road Warriors were or whatever. But, you know, there was a lot of cable wrestling available during that era. I just didn't have access to cable. You know, friends that lived in Long Island would, would be watching the AWA, the NWA, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling, I wasn't getting any of that. What we got in New York when I was growing up was the Saturday night at midnight show, the the Sunday afternoon show, which was WWWF produced by Vince Sr., where Vince Jr. was just the commentator. And on Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock on Channel 47, which was a Spanish station, we would get championship wrestling from Florida from about six to eight weeks earlier. So there was a delay in that. And then Wednesdays on Channel 41, another Spanish station, we got wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium. And that was overdubbed in Spanish. And I didn't speak Spanish, but if you turn the TV up really loud, you could hear the English commentary underneath. And then at some point, all of that disappeared. 
and I had no access to any wrestling. So I just stopped paying attention. You know, when Heyman brought me into ECW and I started being more and more involved, I did start watching Nitro and Thunder and, you know, their, their Raw, Raw's War and whatever other shows they had at the time. I don't think they had SmackDown yet. I think it was Superstars or something like that. And I did pay attention to the music that was being used. That was your original question regarding Jim Johnson. I did pay attention. Do you, do you think um, that someone like him should be acknowledged for the work that they've done in the business? You know, him and people like yourself and different personalities that are not strictly in the middle of the ring. Like, for example, the example I'll give is, isn't Donald Trump in the, and Snoop Dogg in the WWE Hall of Fame? Well, if that's the case, I, I'll be happy to join a club with Snoop Dogg, but I could, I'll live without being in a club with the other dude. But yeah. what we're doing is basically adding and enhancing to the show almost as much as the pyro guy and special effects guy. Okay. Yeah. Jim Johnson, you know, much respect for what he did, but none of us wrote Stairway to Heaven. You know, we, <laughs> none of us were the Mahavishnu Orchestra or Roy Harper. You know, if, if Mahavishnu Orchestra, if you want to compare it to films like a, a, a group like the Mahavishnu Orchestra or Led Zeppelin or The Who, they're like the Titanics, the, the Schindler's Lists. Uh, and what we are was just Saturday morning cartoons. You know, what we were mindless dribble that enhanced a half-naked man covered in baby oil walking to the ring about to do a very odd performance. <laughs> I yeah, think you're being harsh on yourself. No, I'm a pragmatic realist. I know what it is. I know what we did. You know, everybody that's ever done wrestling music is, is verbally blowing themselves as if they've reinvented the wheel. No, we're all just ripping off Led Zeppelin. Come on, let's be honest. And... You know, and and the self-deprecation notwithstanding, though, you're, the music, uh, well, I'm not speaking in the modern era, but in, in the, the era of ECW, etc., and the golden era of the Federation, the music played a very central role in eliciting the most important aspect of a pro wrestling show, and that's emotional buy-in from the audience, and yours certainly did that as well. Well, I tried to avoid doing wrestling music. If that, if that makes any sense, the first song I did for Taz path of rage absolutely is wrestling music, but then I decided not to. So the eliminators song total elimination while technically a wrestling theme, I just tried to do a song. The same thing with the ECW theme. I tried to have more than two parts because what I noticed about most wrestling themes it's an A and A part and a B part that just keep repeating on each other. I tried to add changes, bridges, you know, little riffs. Uh, I see parts and D parts in, within the music. You know, for the, the song that I'm probably most renowned for, Hookah Blues, was not done for pro wrestling. That was just an idea I had for a song that Paul wanted to use. And originally he didn't have any idea who, who it was going to go to. I know the Dudleys wanted it. At one point, they were talking Shane Douglas. And then it became apparent that it was perfect for Sabu, which is why it became synonymous with his identity and had been cloned by two other wrestling companies. 
That song was not based off of Sabu's previous theme music. He was using Fight, or no, he was using Little Crazy by the Rob Halford band, Fight. And Hookah Blues was just an idea I had for a song that Paul ended up wanting to use. You know, at first Sabu hated it. He thought it was too slow, but eventually he realized it's better slow because he doesn't have to run out to the ring and go crazy and start throwing chairs. He, he could walk down there methodically. He could point his finger. He could have, a, you know, take his time, his sweet ass time getting to the ring. And it would still give that emotion that, that holy shit, there's about, there's a psychopath about to like carve somebody up in the ring. Yeah. So how, how did it feel then from you, say been instructed to rip off other people's music then to all these years later have people rip it off one of your creations it's kind of full circle moment isn't it it's karma baby mm. it's karma dude what i you know i i started off you know i don't want to say ripping off but you know doing an homage to that are with that's yeah. within the restraints of the copyright laws like i said let's let's not verbally blow ourselves and say that you know my theme for Austin Aries is the greatest theme in the world, or my theme for uh, the Ultimate Warrior is the greatest theme in the world. The, the the Ultimate Warrior theme, which is great, it really is, is just basically Good Times, Bad Times by Led Zeppelin. You know, listen to the two side by side. Listen to Jaws and the and the ECW theme. You'll you'll hear the connections. You know, Hookah Blues was inspired by a Japanese Godzilla theme. You know, it just turned yeah. turned into it. what it turned into was because of what the saxophone player did. And that's probably, like I said, the, the reason Enter Sandman is so iconic for Sandman and Hookah Blues is so iconic for Sabu is because neither song was actually written for wrestling. You know, that, yeah. and that that's kind of the cool thing about it. You know, the others have done a great job. Every, everybody, everybody that's ever done wrestling music has done, has made more money than I have, but I'm better than all of them because they're still ripping me off 30 years later. Didn't AEW, when they had Sabu on, have some kind of knockoff of Absolutely. your original? Yeah. I, I thought it was my song for the first few minutes. I thought like, wow, Tony Khan must have bought it from Vince. And then I heard the difference in the saxophone and I'm like, Oh, it's not my song. It's an homage too. That was like really, really close. And I actually liked it. It's, it's honestly, it's flattering. When TNA first did Magic Carpet Ride or Carpet Ride for Sabu, people thought I would be pissed off. I'm like, no, it's flattering. I did something so good that somebody else is using it as a blueprint for, for what they're doing. You know, it's like who, who, the first blues musician that ever did a one, four, five it, as, as a blues scale, you know, a million, a million, a zillion blues songs have been done in one, four, five, but the first musician to do it, well, then all props to him, whoever that was, maybe, maybe Robert Johnson. I don't remember. We've, we've all heard a lot about uh, the somewhat uh, tumultuous and chaotic backstage environment of ECW. And just in terms of your, your role creating the music, how did that uh, environment influence you or set parameters forward, maybe consciously or subconsciously for creating the music that you did? Or was it negligible? 
I got to understand where the performers were, where their mindset was with their characters, with the exception of like Sabu, who, like I said, isn't Tajiri's mute. Tajiri's music predated ECW. That's something I created in the very early 90s. But like when we worked on, I, let's say, Mike Awesome's music or uh, Scotty Anton, Scotty Riggs' music, I would talk to them about what they've done, what they've used in the past, and what the mindset of the character and the story is. And I would take it from there. As far as being around the company, a lot of it was, was my main gig was, was production assistant on the live shows and pay-per-views, you know, where I would do a million and one things on any given night, you know, but that was the kind of company it was. Everybody had four jobs, you know, so the music wasn't the, the reason I got brought in. I got brought in because I had a background in live performance, theater, lighting, sound, staging promotion basically i was an all-around guy and then the music thing happened when it happened which basically then put me there almost full time where i was traveling with the companies not so much the house show loops but tv tapings <coughs> excuse me yeah uh, you touched on there kind of working on team tunes for wrestlers was there any specific instructions that you were given from Paul or other people like would they say they bring someone into a room and you look at the guy and you study his character can you write him a theme or what way was the kind of process for that I would see what they wanted 95% of the times just ignored what they told me and just did what I thought was right. <laughs> yeah you know Perry Saturn had a lot of input on what he was looking for on Taz's second theme, I, I could do a 90-minute podcast on that alone. The second theme, Survive If I Let You, became a soap opera nightmare. Paul didn't want Taz, didn't want to give Taz enough power to get a second theme song, and Taz wanted to change his character. I, I have a tape somewhere with like 30 different versions of that song before the final version at the time, Taz was listening to bands like Prodigy and I think it was Fatboy Slim and all these bands that were, were incorporating loops and samples into rock music. And he kind of wanted that. And there was like a techno disco version of it. There was another version of his second theme that sounded like Jane's Addiction. And it just kept going on and on. He was he and Francine are the two people that actually came into the studio uh, during a recording process. Francine came in to sing the lead vocals on Rick Rude's music. And Taz was there where we basically sat him down in front of three keyboards. And he went through the entire library of sounds and he picked sounds that he liked. And we incorporated them into the song and we played it once in the arena and it bombed. And Heyman was very happy that it didn't get over um, because he could then hold it over Taz. But I had put in so much work that I said to Paul, give me one chance. I went back into the studio. I remixed the song 
and I played it for him. This was usually like three, four in the morning in his car outside of like Big Nick's or someplace we'd, we'd meet during the, you know, the wee hours of the morning. And I played it, a cassette for him in the car and he's sitting there and he's staring at me and he goes, I hate you a little bit right now. And I'm like, why? He goes, because I can't say no. This is actually really, really good. And I wanted to be able to say no to Taz. Now I can't say no to him about changing his music. And that's what he used until his last days in ECW. And even to a degree, Mr. Jim Johnson did kind of copy that, you know, that, that tune for when Taz became Taz with the extra Z and WWF, WWE, whatever it was at the time. So Jim, I think, was the first one to clone me based on a song I cloned from someone else. You know, it's like one of those candles. Um, it was it, it used to be another candle, but then we recycled it and made a new candle. But that candle is from 24. It's the 38th generation of recycled candles. You know, it's like plastic bottles. They originally this plastic bottle started life in in 1922. You know, it just keeps getting recycled. In in terms of and this may be hard to um kind of pinpoint but was there was there ever a moment in any of the uh the big ecw events where you heard your music and you go wow this this is this is really friggin cool and this really helped the the match or the moment the first time that happened was at the, the, the wwf event at the hammerstein when taz came out to the 24-hour knockoff of the kiss tune and I'm like, okay, this is great. I've accomplished something I never thought I would. Time to move on. As far as, yeah, there was one time when Sabu made an entrance. I think it was in Kissimmee, Florida, where they actually had some mild pyro for him and his headdress caught fire. And he wasn't part of the match and they played his music continuously while he went in and did his spots and, you know, put somebody through a table and did all his Sabu stuff where it made a difference. And I'm like, yeah, that was cool. But not too often. Usually like the first time I'd hear the song through the loudspeakers, it doesn't sound like shit. I'm happy. Okay. It's part of the company. Move on. Go to the next thing. I remember him here one night, Sabu. He was at a show over here about 10 years ago, and he he jumped onto the barrier. The person moved out of the way. He broke two of his ribs. And an hour after the show, he was in the pub just drinking pints of Guinness with everyone. Not a problem. Oh, yeah. Well, the night that he sliced open his arm at, at Born to be Wired, the Terry Funk barbed wire match, he crazy glued half his arm together. The doctor stitched up the rest. And then about an hour later, we were smoking pot at the Travel Lodge or, or the Holiday Inn, wherever the hell we were. You know, that anybody that ever said, oh, I, I was going to beat up Taz, I was going to beat up Sabu, I mean, there was like some promoter from a Jersey Fed that got pissed off at Sabu and he said, I should have tackled him and, you know, beat the shit out of him. And all I keep thinking is like, this is a guy that has set himself on fire and, and gone through barbed wire. The only way to, to beat him in a fight is to decapitate him because there's nothing you're going to be able to do to Sabu or the real person behind Sabu, whose name I won't say, even though everybody knows what his real name is, 
you know, how are you going to beat this guy in a fight? You know, it's you're gonna what are you you're gonna break his nose? He would do that on his own, and then he would still work a twenty five minute match. Does when when you were first uh, in sorry during the time frame that you were involved in the company, you know, it, it was very much a, a counter cultural sort of movement, and and uh, you know, very. Um, had a cachet for being cool. Did did you realize at the time just how special that uh, ECW was, and that you know there there'd be so many hardcore fans, you know, X number of decades later, still talking about it? No, honestly, no, I didn't. I didn't. What when I finally saw my first ECW show, Heyman had invited me to a bunch of shows, but. For me, at that point, what I saw I was wrestling was guys dressed up like turkeys and plumbers and, you know, repo men and cartoons. And I hated that shit. I love it now. I love watching that stuff now. But when as it was happening, for a guy who grew up with guys like Bruno San Martino and Dominic Danucci and Ivan Putsky, where it was portrayed as a completely real competitive sport to go from Bruno San Martino who wouldn't drink a glass of wine in a restaurant if a child was there because he constantly kept kayfabe going to going to a guy dancing, like, you know, dressed as a turkey and all that, that, that cartoony stuff, you know, it turned me off to it. I lost it on cable. Like I said, I finally went to my first ECW show from the beginning instead of showing up at 1045. And I'm like, this is not the kind of shit that I used to watch that turned me off to it. This is like one giant psychotic mosh pit. It's more of like the audience reminded me more of like somebody you like an audience you would see at a Ramon show at CBGB's. The stuff that the guys were doing was dangerous. It was borderline, you know, borderline psychotic. Some of the stuff was going, I'm like, this is different. I can get into this. So then I start. I kept, then I started attending more shows as a fan. And if I'm at the show, all of a sudden, I'm asked to do something. The very first thing I did for ECW, I went to a show in upstate New York, still not knowing who anybody was. Like the first show I saw at the beginning, Deer Park, um, I thought. Taz, Perry Saturn, and Pitbull number two were the same guy. You know, some bald guy with tattoos. I, I didn't know the difference between them. You know, the first time I'd do anything for ECW were in upstate New York, and they're shorthanded on security. And there was one match that was supposed to brawl through the crowd, and they knew that I had a self-defense background and could handle myself, and they asked me if I would help out with security. And they're like, I'm like, well, what, what do you mean? It's like, well, they're going to be brawling through the crowd. Don't let any of the fans touch or hurt the wrestlers. And I'm like, does that mean I can hurt the fans? You know, can I hit people with the club? They're like, well, we prefer you didn't. But, you know, if somebody's attacking one of the wrestlers, you do whatever you got to do. So that, that became a recurring theme for me, even though I was never part of security when they would go through the crowd, I would jump in the crowd, put the laminates under my shirt, look like any other fan who was just like an undercover security guard. 
And on more than one occasion, I did have to clock somebody that was going after New Jack or the Dudleys. And if I knocked you out between those years, you know, dude, my bad, but you were drunk and you were trying to hurt one of my friends. So you got what you deserved. Can you quickly talk about the, uh, I know you have a, a really interesting story about uh, speaking of fans going wild and attacking. Can you, can you talk about the experience you had with Bam Bam in that regard? Oh, when Shane, his son got hit. Yeah. Um, well, they, they covered it on dark side of the ring. So the incident's been well documented that some drunk basically punched a 10 year old kid or an eight year old kid in the face. I'm backstage and Shane comes back there and you could, I see the welt is like growing on his face and he tells his father what happened. And, and Scott's like, go get this motherfucker. You know, and if I am sorry, can I curse? Absolutely. Okay. Of course. So, Go get this mother effer. So I go out there with Shane and we go through the crowd and Shane points out the guy. And I tell Shane immediately, go backstage and hide. Myself and another dude has H-A-Z-Z, who was called the arms master in the ECW video game. We go up to the guy and has very, very straight face says to the guy, hey, can you come with us? Bam Bam Bigelow wants to meet you. The guys lit up, eyes lit up like Christmas, like, oh, my God, I must have won a contest. And we, we bring this guy backstage and we bring him to Bam Bam and Bam Bam. So you like to hit kids, huh? Bam. And we see him fly past between me and Haz. We step aside as the body off the ground flies off wow. and hits the wall. There's a bunch of younger guys at the curtain waiting to go out and do their spot. And my background from the nightclubs, immediately I go up to them. I said, everybody look at your shoes. The less you see, the less you will have to lie about in a court of law. Don't look at this, what's going on. And that's all I kept hearing was, you like to hit kids, huh? Bam! You like to hit kids, huh? Bam! And then security, Atlas security, basically mopped up what was left of the guy and like, right. I think it's like the scene from Goodfellas. They threw him out the back door and told the cops he got hit by a car or some shit. I don't know what happened to the guy, but I saw Shane's eye. I saw the kid's face, and you could see the welt mark from where he had just gotten punched. It sounds so, like he was justified. Sorry? I said it sounds like uh, Bam Bam was just these actions anyway i never knew that story i've actually had shane on the podcast um about three years ago now he was actually my first few episodes just talking about his dad nice kid as well yeah yeah i, I when i saw him on dark side of the ring i hadn't seen him since he was a, a kid you know which just makes me feel even older like when i every once in a while i'll tune into AEW and i'll see taz's kid hook and i met the kid when he was in diapers He's like less than a year old the first time I met the kid. And I'm like, now he, now he's a big star. And I'm like, this is gone full circle. Colby Carino, who Steve Carino used to bring around the shows because he was a single dad at the time. I remember Colby, you know, bouncing around the ring and, you know, having fun and playing wrestling. And now he's probably one of the better workers on the indie circuit right now. You know, it's, it's just amazing how far the offspring of that generation has come you know i'm still hoping somebody out there 
does a show with Devon's kids, Hook, Colby Carino, uh, Tyler Fullington was working as Twisted Sand for a while, have Johnny Candido on the show. Super Crazy's daughter is now working in Mexico under Super Crazy Junior, the first female luchador to use the junior as opposed El Ijo, you know, El, the daughter of. She's going by Super Crazy Junior. I'm hoping some promoter somewhere has the bright idea of putting the offspring of ECW all together on one show somewhere. I'll go attend yeah. that show. She's she's using your team tune as well, isn't she? She used it a couple times. I don't know if she's using it cons consistently, but when 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 Super Crazy put up the video footage of her first match and she's coming out to his ECW music, I was so I was so beyond honored. It's like, okay, my one song has now gone through two generations. Mm. You know, I you know, and, and if Super Crazy watches this, I still want a poster with him and his daughter on the show. You know, I, I would I would hang that thing up in a heartbeat. I, it was honored and flattering that I think her real name is Ashley, that Ashley used her father's music for her music. It was beyond yeah. flattering. Well, Harry, we are bringing in Super Crazy to Great North Wrestling this year, and I'll make sure that uh, we get that for you, no problem. That would be awesome. Are you bringing his daughter in? We're, we're working on those fine details, but yeah, that's definitely something that I'm interested in as the promoter for sure. Then the poster would have a iconic spot on my wall. You know, I, I would actually, I'd love to get that, but I'd really like to get something from like arena Mexico or the province that the town that they usually do their shows in. Um, it, it would just be something for me personally. It would be like really cool. It'd be having like a poster of Taz and his kid on there, Carino and 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 Colby. Which, if if you people haven't seen it, Steve Carino and his son Colby did a program where they ended up in a match together. I forget which which indie fed that was for, but the video packages leading up to it where uh allison danger came on and was trying to convince steve not to do it and the match itself the build-up and the promo was the most interesting thing i'd watched in wrestling in several years you would think with wrestlemania coming up this year in philadelphia that promoters will be putting on stuff like we just talked about there well, I know Battleground is doing a whole tribute to the extreme at the ECW arena and a block party. And I think they announced the main event of the Dudley boys versus Onita and a partner. Um, nice. Nobody, I haven't gotten my invitation to do an autograph signing that weekend. I am available, but nobody ever you know, reaches out to me because I'm a trivia question. Would you go? Would you do a convention? Sure. Why not? As long as somebody can bring me there and get me home, why not? I'll sign for free all day just for just for laughs because I've never done one. But I'll be honest, I, I, anytime I was approached to do an autograph signing, I always I tell them, I don't think anybody really cares about me personally. They care about ECW music, but not so much me like Jim Johnson and and Dale Oliver and all the other great musicians that have done wrestling music. I don't think any of them have ever done conventions either. I might be mistaken I don't know the, about that. The convention world is pretty it's pretty wild place. Like I think people would definitely be interested in considering mm -hmm. the 
we put into the business. Yeah, but I was never on television in spandex and covered in baby oil. So I, I don't really know that, if there was that a regret. Well, not on television. I have done that in private. Okay. But you know, <laughs> she asked me never to speak about that. You know. <laughs> Although I think she may have videotaped it. And you know, who knows? If I ever run for politics, I'm sure that my spandex and baby oil video will come to light, as will several other videos that involve cat and nine tails, ball gags, you know, and those those awesome ski masks with the zipper. Yeah, but I, I really shouldn't be talking about that. That's that's you know we keep that private stuff private. No, but yeah, I would do. I I don't have any regrets of not being a wrestler because I never wanted to be a wrestler. Maybe when I was like nine years old, and you know there was here in New York there was a guy that had a radio show that would give out his home number to younger boys. And I used to be able to call, I'm not going to say his name for whatever legal reason, but the late, great Black Jack Brown. I, I don't know if you guys know who he is, yeah. a wrestling journalist. I became really good friends with Black Jack Brown through ECW and then following ECW. I love the guy. I miss the guy a great deal. I wish he was still with us. But at one of the conventions, me and Black Jack were just sitting down having a cup of coffee. There was a lull in the action. And I said, hey, Blackjack, do you remember back in the 1970-something, the there was a radio show in New York with this guy and that guy? And he goes, yeah, he was a pedophile. I'm like, excuse me? I was like, yeah. Did he ever invite you to his house to wrestle? And I go, as a matter of fact, he did. I just never went. And he goes, he used to invite 14-year-old boys to his house and teach them how to wrestle. And I'm like, Oh, you just destroyed my childhood. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just thought he was a guy that loved wrestling and liked passing knowledge on to the next generation. I had no idea that he was personally teaching them how to put on the abdominal stretch and how to body slam people. And I'm like, oh, that's it suddenly made a lot of sense to why this guy kept inviting me to go wrestle in his basement with other kids. The old go behind reach around, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a tombstone pile driver, but you hold them up for about three and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what What are your thoughts on uh, in 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 the the modern context, wrestling music themes, etc. Especially thinking of uh, for wrestlers themselves, used to be. Uh, very much uh, a prominent part of the show. It used to be, uh, you know, tied into character, et cetera. And it seems that the business has shifted. And I'm not talking about it on the independents, but the big, the big two, so to speak, have shifted away to a more generic sort of um, uh, music format for for their music, which which is ironic considering how much a television product it is today with a few exceptions such as Jericho, et cetera, et cetera. But what are your, your thoughts on, on why that, that has kind of gone uh, that way away towards notable uh, distinguishing music? Well, um, maybe because I'm not doing it. If you, if yeah. you want the egotistical answer, but the truth is there is so much contact. Con content out there right now 
that whoever is sitting behind their, their pro tools and with their little keyboard and creating themes, if you got to create 20 different pieces of music on a weekly basis, eventually the brain doesn't really get as creative as it should. And maybe because there is so much content that the company should have two or three different people doing that job. Plus, in many cases, it's usually a one-man band. Like, I believe Jim Johnson and Dale Oliver were playing all their instruments, and they would bring in different singers and what have you. I shied away from that for the entire th ECW thing, because when you bring in different musicians, different bass players and different drummers and different guitar players and different piano players and keyboards and what have you, you're getting a completely unique and different perspective from your own. And it's opening up a, a universe of musical possibility that wouldn't be there if it's just one guy playing guitar, bass and drums, you know, so usually the, the individual one man band musician has a certain concept of how the drum should be, the bass would be, the guitar would be, but you put three people up there with three different influences and backgrounds and likes and dislikes, you're going to get three unique personalities going into those backing tracks. And once you start with something that's out of the ordinary and, and, and unique on its own, then you can just build and add to those ideas, you know, which gives it the uniqueness. You know, I joke around, you know, my self-deprecation, as I say, but, you know, if I'm still being cloned 25 years later, I must have done something right. And for all That's these guys, guess. what the guys are doing today, if 25 years from now, somebody does a knockoff of one of their things, then they're just as good as I am. And it wasn't just me. Because as I said, I collaborated with a lot of people, with Richie Scarlett, with Roderick Cohn, with even Steven, with Arno Hecht, with, with Steve Budgie, with Tony Moore, with all these other great musicians that would come in and I'd say, do this, do that. And they would do, well, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but what if instead of going to the fifth, I went to the third? You know, what if we, we reversed it on the turnaround, all the stuff that I may not have thought of, suddenly adds different colors to, to the overall picture. You know, today's music is, is just churn it and get it out there. And most of today's music from what I heard is all knockoffs. You know, I, I do occasionally watch AEW and I do watch New Japan. New Japan's music is probably the best, but not for an American audience. You know, they have a completely different style of presentation in Japan, or at least they did back in the 90s and early 2000s. When I listen to All Elite every so often, I'll tune into Impact. Once in a blue moon, I tune into WWE. None of their music jumps out at me. You know, my favorite song on, on AEW is Wild Thing that they use for John Moxley. Not saying that... The dude that does AEW music isn't good at what he does. He's obviously very good at what he does. But where's where's his stare? Where's his hookah blues? 
You know, where, where is his one piece of music that stands out above the rest as being an original, unique piece of music? And I say this about Jim Johnson and Dale Oliver and all of them. You know, what is your signature song that they're going to be talking about in 25 years? Are there any? I, mean, I, I don't know. AEW have paid a lot of money since its existence on licensing certain songs. Like, I mean, big, big money, but that's no problem to those guys. No, no. When you have deep, deep pockets, you know, hey, more power to them. I think Tony Khan's original concept was ECW with WCW's budget. You know, and more power to him. If he can afford to, to license Wild Thing and Tarzan Boy and all these great songs from from the past, I think they just licensed uh, uh, Carry On My Wayward Son by Kansas for the Young Bucks. More power to you, man. You're, you're, that's how ECW broke the, the mold by using commercial music. You know, so the more the the more the merrier. And since nobody's doing DVDs anymore, you don't have to worry about sync license, just broadcast rights. Yeah. What's what's day to day life like for you now, Harry? What are you doing um, in terms of music at the moment? I spent six months working on a Christmas album that didn't come out before Christmas. Next year. Uh, yeah. I started it in June and all the backing tracks were done the first or second day of December and an amazing singer that I was supposed to have. I wasn't going to sing it. I wasn't looking for an ego trip. I had an amazing singer lined up that I think was using the Julian calendar or the Orthodox calendar and must have thought it was early November and not December. So he sent me, unfortunately, unusable tracks a week before Christmas. After saying, you know, I'll get on the first week of Christmas, he said, I'll do them, the, you know, this weekend. So it's great. Yeah, we can mix it and get it out by Christmas. Then the following week, it's like, oh, I'll get to it by Friday. And I'm like, okay, we can mix it and get it out on Christmas Day. And then it got to the point where we were a week away from Christmas and I still didn't have vocals. So on Saturday, I believe the 17th, one week before Christmas, I got up with four hours sleep. I have a mouthful of stitches because I'm currently in the midst of getting bone graft and implants. And I went into the studio and sang three songs. And unbeknownst to me at the time, I even had COVID. So I sang three songs in three hours, sucking on NyQuil in between verses, just so I wouldn't be coughing my guts out. And then get the three songs finished. And by that Saturday night, I was in full COVID mode. I tested positive twice. I warned everybody at the studio, nobody got sick, just me. But I sang three songs with a mouthful of stitches, four hours sleep and COVID but the COVID knocked me on my ass and I couldn't finish mixing the songs. So what myself and my, my collaborator, even Stephen Levy are gonna be doing is releasing one song this month. We're gonna release Good King Wenceslas, you know, 11 months before Christmas of 2024 and maybe drop one more song a month after that. And then as we get closer to Christmas of 2024, 
maybe we'll put the whole record out. You know, it, it would have been great. I have some great musicians on there. I have Les Warner, who was with the cult for a couple of years. He, he played drums on that. And the whole project was a, an experiment in remote recording where I created all the songs, bass, guitar, keyboards, ukulele, glockenspiel. I created a digital blueprint using GarageBand and, and Logic Pro. I sent the tracks to Manhattan where even Steven played bass and then he sent the tracks to Las Vegas where Les Warner played guitar, played drums. And then the, the tracks came back to New York, got mixed down, got sent to California and, for a dude named Tom Jack, a Canadian, a Canadian resident. He's one of your people, Jack. But he also has Irish citizenship there, Maurice. So Tom Jack is the bridge between all of us. He's currently living in my country, was in a citizen of Maurice's country, and was born in Jack's country. So Tom Jack did this amazing job playing six or 12 string acoustic guitars and electric guitars. And this other friend of mine, Ross Byron, he laid down some acoustic tracks and we had all this great music ready to go and waiting for the singer and waiting for the singer. And I'm sure he'll eventually send me the songs by Easter, you know, or something like that. But at this point, I just sang them myself. I'm not as good a vocalist as the person I wanted to use, but I can hold my own. And hopefully people won't say this stuff sucks. What what we try what I tried to do is to make every song as diverse as possible. Good King Wenceslas sounds like a Celtic cartoon, for lack of a better term. It kind of sounds like the Irish Rovers meet Sesame Street. God rest you merry gentlemen sounds like Pink Floyd doing music for a horror mu movie. And Bleak Midwinter kind of sounds like a cross between Stevie Ray Vaughan and like a Ronnie James Dio tune. And then there's a, there's a few others that we haven't gotten to yet. So I, I went for complete non-normal Christmas songs. And why Christmas songs? Well, a friend of mine from Paris had, had approached me about doing it for her project, and I don't want to say she flaked out, but she flaked out. And the project just took on a life of its own. I'm not a Christmas guy. I'm not like Mick Foley that runs around, you know, dressed like Santa Claus. I might look like Santa Claus if I don't dye my beard, but, you know, I make sure I shave because during December, little kids jump in my lap and tell me what they want for Christmas. And that, that's not a good thing to have happen to you in New York. Not at all. Well, no. you have been uh, extremely entertaining as always, Harry. Appreciate you being on the show. But can you tell the fans where they can keep up with you on social media and any developments that arise in your musical endeavors? Well, I am on Twitter, I believe, as Slash Tones One or Harry Slash. I'm on Instagram as Harry Slash or Slash Tones One. Honestly, I'm anti-social media. So I'm out there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. And if you spend a moment just looking for me, Google Harry Slash, Slash Tones, my real name, if you know what it is, you'll find me. I'm, I'm not hard to find, but I am hard to get rid of. You know, and, and do you know what we'll do? You know what we'll do? We'll keep this in mind. When that Christmas album is ready to drop, we'll get you back on the show, and we won't even talk about wrestling at all. 
Well, we'll have good King Wenceslaus out to you guys very shortly. I mean, it would have been great if I could have finished it at least by Boxing Day, the 26th, which is what the song is about. There's no mention of Mary, Jesus, angels, archangels, or anything like that. And that's a song basically about being good to your fellow man. So it's been lumped in as a Christmas song because it takes place during the Feast of Stephen, which is Boxing Day. But that'll be out before the end of January, and then we'll see what happens for the rest of the year. Excellent. Well, once again, we very much appreciate your time for coming on the Cheapy Productions Wrestling Podcast. We'll keep in touch, and we'll stay on top of that uh, exciting release and look towards next holiday season when the whole enchilada comes out we'll definitely have you back maybe before i mean i've never done anything normal maybe i'll release all the christmas music by the summer christmas in uh, july gimmick or something. <laughs> you know get, get, get a six month head start on everybody else lovely maurice final thoughts sir final thoughts yes. christmas in june let's do it <laughs> Very good. Well, fans, that's it for this edition of the Cheap Heat Productions Wrestling Podcast. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe. Stay up for the notifications so you don't miss the quality content we have coming in 2024. Thanks once again to Harry Slash, a great guest as always, and we'll see you wait, next wait. time. Wait, one thing, one thing. One thing. We never talked about why Bigfoot was never spotted at Studio 54. Let's hit that up next time. Okay. Let's keep it, keep it as a cliffhanger. Okay. Excellent. Fans, again, subscribe, stay tuned, and we will see you next time.